I suppose to start off with a, a question. Why are you all here? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question, isn't it? What are you doing here? Because I, what I want to examine just this evening and try and weave some threads together <clears throat> is really the question of intention, what we're doing. It's a good question to keep on asking ourselves, no matter how long you've been practising. It doesn't really matter how long you've been practising, but to keep on asking ourselves, why are we doing this? Because uh, face value sometimes, it looks quite ludicrous, doesn't it? <laughs> You know, here, we, here we sit in a silly pose, <laughs> trying to follow our breath or something, or watching, you know, as, as Bantagunaratna often says, you know, close your eyes and watch the madhouse. <laughs> it's good to ask yourself this question. Why are we doing? Why are we doing what we're doing? Now, obviously the Buddha has a very, very clear answer to this. We do it in the service of liberation. This is what we're doing. And so if we're bringing uh, an intention to it, then everything that we do within the practice should reflect that intention. To reflect the intention, for example, very important bit, often get missed, missed out because we get all head sometimes in Buddhist practice, is actually examining what's going on in the body. You know, seeing whether the posture embodies that intention. To strive for liberation. Now what that means of course is that if we are striving for liberation and this striving is not a good word these days, is it? We kind of get kind of effort words tend to get sort of blocked out. But they're very important because that's actually what we're doing. We're putting energy into this. We're putting effort into doing what we're doing and it's very, very important that we do so. So when we're striving within our practice, does our body actually literally embody the intention to stay awake and alert, attentive, interested and curious about what's going on for you? If you want a kind of mantra that could run through virtually any meditation retreat, it's what the hell's going on. That's really the interest and the curiosity that you bring to your practice to find out what's going on. You know, whether we're doing a mindfulness retreat, whether we're doing a meta retreat, or whether we're doing an emptiness retreat, it doesn't matter. You're going to discover a lot. And some of it can be quite painful. And so staying with now, there is, there is a dynamic couple you're all very, very familiar with that happens when, for example, curiosity and interest depart. <laughs> <laughs> you know where I'm going, don't you? Sleepiness and drowsiness. Or, I love it in the old translation, sloth and torpor. That makes it sound much more dramatic, doesn't it? You know, sloth and torpor, or sleepiness and drowsiness are going to come upon you. you know, once... The intention to remain alert, attentive, aware, have departed. When you feel, perhaps, that everything that you're looking at is a little bit too much, a little bit overwhelming. So this is the sleepiness and drowsiness of escape. It's not the sleepiness and drowsiness of literally being tired, physically tired. We often will escape, switch off. 
move out from this particularly difficult situation that we can find ourselves. And in some cases, that's perfectly all right. Yeah, it's perfectly okay. But observe what's going on. See for yourself what is happening. So intention is the real, is the real foundation. And particularly, I think, in any form of practice, but particularly when we start delving into emptiness, shunya, you know, this fundamental teaching of the Buddha. Now, this teaching, try and, we're going to kind of throw out a few threads and then try to weave them all together eventually, I hope. Um, this teaching of Shunya, of course, is fundamental to all Buddhist traditions. It's not just the teaching of the Mahayana, Mahayana Buddhism, the great vehicle. You will find it in, well, you'll find it in the Pali Canon. You will find it in the Chinese version of the Pali Canon, which is there in a Chinese translation from a Sanskrit text. You will find that the, the very heart of the Buddha's teaching is the teaching of emptiness. And it becomes out as a direct correlate out of the teaching of anatta, or anatma, not-self. What is not-self? Why is it such an important teaching? I'm sure Rob's explored some of these ideas with you already, but um, hopefully I can add a, a, a perspective to them. Why is it such an important teaching? Well, it's to cut the cord of craving that ties us to phenomenal existence. The self is that which is entrapping. Um, we're literally captivated by the self. There's a wonderful myth, which I'll explore with you again, which you all know. It's called the myth of Narcissus. Yeah. Medieval myth, basically, going back to the ancient Greek, of the beautiful young man who sees his image in the still waters of a pool. And there's a number of different versions. The one I like the best is he's so captivated himself by himself, he falls in and drowns. <laughs> you know... And actually, that's a very, very good metaphor, isn't it, for what is often happening in our lives when we're selfing tremendously. We're drowning in ourselves, literally. Not a pleasant experience a lot of the time. I don't know if you ever noticed that. It's not a pleasant experience. You know, so when we talk about the three characteristics, the, the tilakana, the three characteristics of existence, and we talk about anatta, and I've really started with the last one first, we're talking about something which the Buddha perceives as being one of the great entrapments, the sense of self, by talking about its opposite, <laughs> that actually things do not possess self-essence stability. As good as it gets, really, is everything is impermanent. That's about as good as it gets. Yeah. Um, I'm afraid the Buddha wasn't into consolation. <laughs> he really wasn't. Unlike a lot of the people teaching at the time of the Buddha, the Buddha's message is not a metaphysical consolation. He's not holding out nice ideas, you know, heavenly realms or anything like this. This was all spoken about by... You know, the other traditions that are around, particularly the Upanishadic tradition, which was very much prevalent at the time of the Buddha. It seems the Buddha was absolutely steeped in that tradition, knew it inside out, and the practices that went with it, the yoga-type practices that went with it. 
But unlike that tradition, he's not offering any consolation of union with some kind of oneness. Uh, he doubts that there is even the possibility of that oneness at all. Um, and I've often, I know some of you sitting in this room, knowing some of you, have heard me say this before, but, you know, the Buddha's final words, you can paraphrase them wonderfully in English. You know, the, 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 lovely, the, the lovely translation you'll find in the Walsh translation of the Long Discourses in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta is something like this. All things are compound, all compounded phenomena are impermanent. Strive on diligently. You know, he doesn't go into great disquisition about it. Um, Doesn't he say, be a lamp unto yourself or something? That's earlier, that's earlier. What was it? The the literally final so-called recorded words of the Buddha are are these words. Okay. Which can be paraphrased into English, I think, in a much more colloquial idiom. Absolutely everything is impermanent, now get on with it. (laughs) Because that's our situation, (laughs) isn't it? So, actually being serious about this, there are quite a number of factors, which again come back to intentional factors, which is the courage to inquire, the courage to face impermanence that's written into the warp and woof of life um, that we see around us, the impermanence, the tragedies even, the suffering that will not leave one of us untouched in this world. Now, the content of experience as it comes to us is actually almost irrelevant. It's what you do with it that becomes important. You know, because things are going to come to you unbidden. You're not going to want much of the stuff that happens to you. you know, we like change, but on our own terms, don't we? You know, that's the control freak in all of us, wanting to have change on our own terms. Change that comes unbidden... The impermanence, you know, when relationships drop apart, or when you lose a loved one, or even when your dog dies, or whatever. You know, these things we don't want to happen. We do literally want to know nothing of them most of the time. You know, we want to you know, not see those things. It's interesting, isn't it, when you think of the three characteristics. You know, you've got impermanence, the bridge, dukkha, and then the final one of anatta, of not-self, that all of those characteristics, I think we know already. We see them around us. Certainly the first two, even if not the latter. The latter is a little bit less intuitive, sort of slightly counterintuitive. But certainly when we look at the first two, we see that there is an awful lot of dukkha around in life, an awful lot of unsatisfactoriness going on you know, in daily life. We see um, almost a direct correlate of that, and much of this unsatisfactoriness of life. And, I mean, the Buddha really is saying, he's not saying some things are unsatisfactory, you know, and some things are impermanent. He's saying all things are impermanent, and as a result of that, they are experienced as being unsatisfactory. You know, life is structurally incapable of providing us with satisfaction, in the sense that we often desire it. We often want things to be stable, and it says, unless, as I say, you know, the caveat is, you know, unless it's something undesired. You, know, you don't want pain to stay around, you want that to go, but you want the good things to last. And of course those are unstable. So we live in perpetual instability. 
you know, the welcome to the madhouse, I said, of, of Bhantikunaratnas, you know, that is really showing the instability of the mind. This constant, constant flow of stuff that happens basically when we just absorb, observe any thought patterns whatsoever. There's a lovely word in Pali which is used to really emphasize this, which is papancha. It's a word to get to know, or prapancha in Sanskrit, which means to basically diffuse, to spread out. It's derived from a root in the language, which means to spread out. Well, you know, it, here's a bit of papancha for you. You know, you're suffering. You like to spread it out. You know, like to communicate it to others. Why keep a good suffering to yourself? <laughs> Spread it to others. And we do that very effectively. But the other aspect of this, being more serious about this, but the other important aspect of this propuncturing, this diffusion, is its obsessional thinking. We're caught up in obsessional thinking. Often, again, notice how they come together, associated around a self. Now, the Buddha uses a very, very powerful simile in talking about the self. Again, third mark of existence. There is a lack of self. There is a not-self in our experience. Yet we have this overriding, um, almost perpetual reflex of putting an eye into experience where it doesn't have to be. Yeah. We're constantly projecting ownership onto things where we, there is no ownership at all. Experience is just happening. Things are just happening. Yet we instigate the I-ness into it. And I joke about this, call this the royal I-ness. <laughs> we put this I-ness in there um, and own it. And this is what we're doing to all experience. Therefore, I like it or I don't like it. I am as the Buddha says, is a conceit. Yeah. And I'll give you a quotation from this at some point. So we're constantly projecting this sense of I into experience. Now, the, coming to the simile that the Buddha uses, he says it's like a dog being tied to a post. The I is that which is sort of firmly planted in the ground in which we constantly keep circling, just like the dog tied up. Yeah, so we go round and round ourselves, perpetually. Yeah. Not, again, not a happy experience for most of us. Circling around ourselves and coming back to ourselves. Circling around again and coming back again. This experience of déjà vu. <laughs> now, the Buddha uses a very strong term, um, one that was used in Indian thought at the time, called sangsara. Yeah. Sangsara, of course, is this perpetual circling that goes on. It's actually derived from the Pali Sanskrit root, which means to go round in circles. Yeah. So that's what sangsara is doing, circling. Finding ourselves almost lumbered with ourselves. Yeah. There I am, yet again. <laughs> Here I am, experience. I pop up all over the place. <laughs> In experience. Yeah. When you think it's all sort of neutral, there I am, <laughs> in the middle of it. Now, I'm sending this up partly to make a point, but 
notice the way that this ownership, this sense of self is occurring in all of our even basic perceptions. It's there within it. So we've got the self, which is constantly there. Not a pleasant experience, so it's unsatisfactory, because the self is never going to be perfect. Um, A lot of New Ageism works on self-help, self-perfection, trying to perfect something which really is unstable. We're radically unstable. That's what selves are. I would like to turn, as the Buddha does in a lot of this, I'd like to turn these nouns into verbs. It's not so much a self as selfing. We're engaged in the selfing process. We're dukkering as well. Now, I know many of you have heard me say this, but it's always worth reminding ourselves what this word dukkha means, because you've all seen standard translations, suffering. That's the standard translation. Well, it doesn't really mean that at all. It's derived from two terms, du and ka. Du means unpleasant, means dirty, actually. Anything that's unpleasant, dirty, painful. Um, Sometimes it often referred to um, a hole made by an arrow. When you pull the arrow out, it would leave a hole. Um, that was the painful bit. (laughs) Um, The car refers to space, because a lot of Indic languages are compounding languages, so you compound two words together and you end up with another word, and dukkha is exactly like that. Car is space. So literally, if you want a quick translation of dukkha, it's a dirty space, an unpleasant space to be in, or place to be in. Works very well, I think, in English, because we often use these. It's not a pleasant place to be in, mentally. It also referred to the hole in the wheel into which the axle fitted, which was packed with dirt and grease and grit, and it went round and round and round. Um, And it was also wobbly. (laughs) It was also wobbly, um, because this referred to the wheel... also the inadequacy of the wheel of life to run smoothly. Here. There is no smooth running phenomena. <laughs> Here. Things wobble. <laughs> and they go round and round and round and round. And so there's this kind of texture of experience which is basically unsatisfactory. Remember what I said, big statement, I know, that Actually, the world or life is structurally incapable of providing you with satisfaction. The world is not going to do it for you. Life presents you generally with the stuff that you don't want. You have noticed that. (laughs) There you are wanting something to happen, and the very opposite often comes along. Not always, but the opposite often comes along. And so we're constantly having to deal with the stuff that we don't want. And the stuff that we do want is disappearing. Usually quite quickly. Notice I'm happy. That's going. <laughs> you know, notice there's a bit of joy or a bit of peace. Now, I don't want to be sound pessimistic about this. Really, I'm just trying to, be, to, to, really to share with you the ideas that it's not under control. There is nothing here that's under control. Yeah. You know, impermanence is exactly that. Life is not under control. 
the more we try to control it, well, do you ever try to control your thoughts, stop your thoughts? You notice what happens if you try to cut off thought? Yeah. They get faster and faster. Yeah. Often that's what happens the more and more we try to control life, the more it seems to come at us, a lot quicker. Um, I've shared this so many times in this room, but I'm going to say it again because I like it as a quote. So it's me here, holding on to this lovely little quote I like, which is, I came across, which was, relax, nothing is under control. <laughs> yeah. Because we think it is. You know, it's, it's, we think we can only relax, of course, when things are under control. But of course, we kind of don't. You know, here is a much more intelligent way of looking at it. Relax because it isn't under control. Cease to worry about doing anything about it. Cease to have the illusion of control over many things. Now, I'm right going back to something I said earlier on. The content of experience, i.e. what's coming to us, actually is very, very little of it will be under our control. And even if it is, then it's often wrong. Not quite right. Have you noticed that? Even with the things that you really, really want... Sometimes, I always call it the worm in the apple. There can be, well, it's what I want, but it's not quite the right colour. Or it's not quite how I imagined it would be when I got this. You know, there's always that little worm in the apple, or even just the noticing that the acquisition, and I'm talking very much here about material things, but obviously, but the acquisition of something isn't as good as the, you know, the desiring of it. Yeah. That somehow there's a bit of dukkha almost written into it that's going to come back to us. So very little is to do with the content, what I call the whatness that comes to us. And here's a little phrase for you. It's not what, but how that becomes important. How we relate to the what is happening. That is where, if you like, we have possibility. We have the possibility of being able to do something. It's not that somebody is there and I'm speaking with them. It's not the what, but how I relate to them becomes important. Whether I relate to them with hatred, with anger, aversion or whether I can relate to them with kindness or compassion. That becomes the determining factor about the wholesomeness or only unwholesomeness of our activity. And so we come back, we've circled around again, we come back to intention again. Because actually all of our responses are a series of intentions that are arising in our life. This word is a very, very important word in the early text. It's called Chaitana. Chaitana is constantly what we're bringing to experience. Now, those Chaitanas can be, for example, conscious intentions. But, you know, post-Freud, we know pretty well that not everything is conscious that's going on for us, or certainly doesn't have to be part of an unconscious, but it's things that we're not conscious of. The Buddha goes even further, and some of the traditions, when you look, start to examine it, really look much further at this. In the Abhidhamma tradition, which is the kind of third part of the Dipitaka, of the three baskets, um, then every emotional response is an intention. And intentions create something, which are consequences. 
So everything we're doing, even doing nothing, has an intentional quality to it. So you can't escape. There's no get out. So there's no get out clauses here. You can't escape from this. We're constantly enmeshed in a network of intentions. That is the how of our experience, not the what is happening. The what is happening, as I said, just to reiterate, we can often have very little control over. The how is where our area of control lies, if you want to call it control. What we're bringing to that experience, what we're doing. So it sort of behoves us really to look very, very closely at our intentional acts. Now there's a big word that seems to be flying around all over the place these days in uh, contemporary society, um, certainly in therapies, it's called mindfulness. Um, this is the big word that's being used in secular and Buddhist circles, it obviously derives out of Buddhism, but it's the awareness that we bring to what is happening, the interest and the curiosity with which I look at my experience. This is a particular intention, in other words, to look at experience without rejecting and without necessarily being hooked by it and dragged along. The one thing you'll know about Papancha is like getting on a train, except you don't know where the train's going to (laughs) go. When you let your mind flow in that way, just one thought triggers off another thought, which triggers off another thought, which triggers off another thought. Before you know it, you're off somewhere. Because yeah. you haven't got a clue where the destination's going to be. At all. Now, you can be caught up in that, not knowing where the destination's going to be. Um, caught in the thinking, caught in the trap of thoughts sparking other thoughts, sparking other thoughts. I'm sure you've all done this, haven't we? You know, there you'll find yourself in a meditative, yeah, in a meditative situation... And before you know it, you're thinking about your summer holidays. <laughs> you know, about your vacation, or whatever it's going to be. Or whatever, or just thinking about lunch. <laughs> you're off there, and you don't know how you get there. That's important to understand, that you don't know how you get there. However, what awareness does, of course, is allow you to see the passing passage of thought. To allow you to observe it. So there's a huge difference, isn't there? There's a huge difference between being entrapped and caught by thought, which is associated with a selfing process. I'm going to go into this in more detail in other talks I give. To be caught in a selfing process with conceit. Um, The conceit of, for example, I am better than or I am worse than others. These are all associated with the self in process. So Papancha has a content, and they're actually obsessional contents. And guess what? I figure in all of them. (laughs) In a sense, it comes up constantly, because it's always this self-reflexiveness. Always reflexing, reflexing back on ourselves. Back to how it is for me. So the dukkha is always personal, isn't it? 
notice how we personalize it very quickly. Dukkha is always very personal. This is what the, you know, it's almost like the universe has selected you out for Dukkha. <laughs> just, I mean, just think about it. Just in ordinary situations, when something is going wrong for you, it's like you've been, self, you've been selected here to experience this. Yeah. However, think about it. What happens in our lives is pretty impersonal. Most of it. It's uncertain, it's impermanent, and it's impersonal. That's basically what's happening for all of us. But we don't see that. There's a funny thing that happens to thought. It gets extremely personalised. We notice that. Everything that runs through our heads somehow is personalised and it becomes important. Again, check this out in your experience. We don't just think of thought. I'm not saying, well, I'm having this thought of anger, but it's not really important. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that sound implausible? You know, only when we distance ourselves slightly can we take that attitude towards it. That this is just a thought. The thought of anger, the thought of jealousy, the thought of resentment, ill will, whatever it might be. And I'm using deliberately negative emotions because those are the ones that are often unpleasant and we immediately hook into them, immediately attaching ourselves to them, that they suddenly become personal and they suddenly become extremely important. There is a huge reification going on in this of placing ourselves in those experiences which actually, if you want to see it, this is in a sense where we are heading with this retreat, and actually seeing the impersonal nature of much of what is happening, even your thought processes. What we do a lot of the time, what we do a lot of the time, I should say, is we talk to ourselves, don't we? We're, already, we're always talking to ourselves. I mean, the German philosopher Heidegger had a wonderful thing. He said, you know, we talk in our sleep, we talk when we're reading, we talk when we're silent. We're always talking. Yeah, what are we talking in? An impersonal medium. It's called language. Yeah. You might be imaging as well. And there might be thoughts around those images. And it's all fairly impersonal. Yet, we take it so seriously. Yeah, that is the attachment. That's the deep, deep attachment that we have. Of taking it so seriously... And so personally. So if there is a thought of anger, a thought of jealousy, a resentful thought arising, then I am resentful. I am jealous. I am angry in these situations. Now there's a phrase that constantly runs throughout the Pali Canon. Um, I'm referring primarily in a lot of the talks I'll be doing to the early texts. The phrase that runs constantly throughout the canon, and I'm sure we'll be going there at some point, which is, this is not I, this is not me, and this is not mine. Yeah. Obviously working very, very strongly on this sense of depersonalizing what is happening. Stop taking it so personally, the Buddha's saying. Yeah. Stop taking everything that happens so personally. So, kind of we've 
got a few textures and threads here so far, haven't we? Intention as being one really important dimension. Beginning to perceive what those intentions are. Even be it just when we sit. The question I asked you at the beginning, what are we doing here? But what are we doing here then, if we answer that in a way where we're trying to remain alert, attentive, aware, with the possibility of liberating ourselves from the claustrophobia of circularity. I don't know if you've ever noticed that this state of dukkering, with its circularity, with its sangsaring, actually is quite claustrophobic. It gets even more claustrophobic because we've insinuated a self into it. We've put that right at the heart of our experience, that notion of the self. So in, in remaining with the intention to be alert is to watch that process, to see that process, to gain some insight into that process of how we continuously insert this self where it does not need to be in our experience, where there does not need to be this claustrophobia and there can be a sense, a sense of spaciousness, of liberation, of lightness, of radiance in our life, as opposed to almost being circumscribed by it. And here's a line drawn in the sand, we stand in it and we can't move out at all. We're surrounded by this. Now, that sense of surroundedness, of the circularity, all the things I've referred to so far, doesn't just come about, it's created. It's created through many things. One of the big things I'm going to explore with you, and I'll only mention it tonight, is actually fundamental confusion. There's a fundamental confusion to the way that we are here in this world. Now, that fundamental confusion often goes under the name of, in traditional Buddhist circles, of ignorance, of vidya. But it's confusion rather than ignorance. Although if we use ignorance etymologically in English, it's to ignore. You know, to keep on ignoring the obvious you know, out of our confusion. So we're confused about the way things are. You know, the Buddha constantly talks about you know, the content of awakening is seeing the way things are, yata bhutam, you know, seeing how they are, not what they are, how they are, how they present themselves, what are the processes that are going on, what are the processes that are going on in our perceptual processes, the ways that we keep on, as I say, without sounding too repetitive, I hope, of constantly generating self where it has no need to be. So the possibility is the movement from that claustrophobia. And this is why your intention is so important, and why we keep need to examining our intention almost every time we sit. To sit is, <laughs> and here perhaps I'm going to you know, make it deliberately provocative, is what you're doing really just aimed at making sangsara a little bit more palatable? Yeah. just taking a little few of the rough edges off to make it a little bit more palatable. Or is the intention to become awake? To awaken to the way they actually are? 
and I say that, and I say that deliberately, and I hope slightly provocatively, because often when we begin to really look at what our intentions are, often it is really I want to be me, but with not quite so much suffering. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that sense of self and that sense of clinging is still really there. So you actually just want a more palatable samsara. <laughs> You know, whether the I or the me is a bit more in control. Yeah. Learning to, to be more yourself. Yeah. I mean, there's a great thing in New Ageism, isn't there? Trying to discover your true self. <laughs> Whatever that might mean. Yeah. Um, I love a quotation which is of um, Catherine Mansfield the short story writer, when she said she was always perplexed about this phrase, be true to yourself. She said, when I look inside myself, I find my, I'm, I'm the concierge in a hotel of a hundred guests. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all these different people chattering away inside. So where, which one's the true one? Yeah. So the question devolves back upon... And I really, it's a serious question. I mean, I know I've joked a lot about it and tried to send it up a little bit. But, but I really, the question devolves upon what do you want out of this practice? Where are you going? Are you looking for the kind of liberation from confusion, the liberation from attachment, actually, to suffering, a lot of it, so the attachment to dissatisfaction? I mean, why let go of your grumpiness? about things are not the way they want. We could have nothing to talk about. <laughs> I'm always joking about it again, but this, this, there is a deep attachment, often, to our pains, actually. Because there's another element, which, again, hopefully we'll get time to um, examine, which is the search for identity that we have. When we're really talking about looking for our true self, and I know I, I kind of... Um, referred to it slightly disparagingly. But what really we are searching for in that true self is a sense of who we really are. Yeah, and that really comes back to a question about what remains constant in my experience. Well, we're back in here to selfing again. That which is constant in experience. The Buddha really, as again, is often not offering consolation. He's saying there is no one element of experience which does not change. Yeah. There is not a constant element within the individual which is permanent. Yeah. Do, do you mind if I just... No, please do. Because the Buddha says somewhere something about uh, there's an unbecome and unmade, you know, mm. and without Deathless. that there'll be no refuge. So mm. how does that play into what you're talking about. Well, I think there's often a great misinterpretation of that, uh, of that particular passage. And there, there's a few references to it. It's basically the same passage that gets repeated in a number of places in the Pali Canon. And in particular, it refers to a deathless state. Yeah. I don't know if you come a deathless state. There is an unbecome and unconditioned um, and it's referred to in a number of passages in the, in the Pali Canon. And basically the question was, how does that fit in with what I'm saying about this? And the Buddha really isn't pointing to a metaphysical heaven in that passage. He's reporting to, actually on 
something which is from the point of view of awakening, of being awakened, then all that self stuff drops away. It's dropping away. So in particular, and this is one I really want to make reference to, it's an unconditioned and a deathless. He often refers to the state of amacharyam in Pali, which is the deathless state. And he's not referring to the fact that you know, there is a kind of eternal, eternal life after death. He's not referring, there's no great long post-mortem state after death. What he's pointing to, if there is no self, no fixed self, what is there to die? So from the point of view of awakening, in understanding that there is no fixed self, actually death is constantly here. There is nothing to, there is no thing. This will come back. I'll pick this up again at some other point. There is literally no thing to die. So that is what he's meaning by the deathless. So if you live in the present, the present, you know, without that self being projected into experience, if you're really living that present moment, then that's the deathless. It's not some post-mortem state. The deathless is now. Yeah. It's the Pradhanipalamita when it says no death and no ending of death. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you get a number of different references to it. Um, often, often, actually, one of the things I'll keep referring to is often the elements of Mahayana, particularly Prajnaparamita, um, you will find in the early text are just exemplified in some of the later texts. I'll pick out the original passage, I'll bring it along, and for those who don't know this passage, it's actually quite a famous one, um, in talking about the unconditioned, the unbecome, um, the deathless state. And it's usually interpreted as being something which is almost, uh, the, you know, is unchanging, unconditioned, um, and those very words are used, unconditioned. But it means simply not being conditioned by the factors that condition normal experience. That's all it means. It does not mean that it doesn't have causes and conditions. The Buddha himself firmly says throughout the canon, all phenomena are dependently originated. All phenomena depend on other phenomena. Interdependence is the name of the game. And actually, it's out of that insight, the insight into interdependence, and again you'll hear me say this later on, and that actually is the content of the Buddha's awakening, the content of interdependence, knowing how samsara is originated, and knowing how nibbana can come about. Seeing that causal process, we can understand, in other words, how Sangsara is created, how the mess is created. Yeah. There's a very famous passage in one of the suttas where the Buddha says, who's going to untangle the tangle? Yeah. And tangle is us. Yeah. And we got ourselves into the tangle in some way or another. Yeah. And it's that untangling process is by seeing the causes and the conditions that have brought about the confusion that we live in. So this is a complete process of clarification. And shunyata, emptiness, is really the clarifying point. And it's really quite a simple idea, but it's one I think that we just don't get most of the time. It's incredibly simple. 
which is we're looking for something which in experience which it simply does not possess. Stability. Certainty. You know, thingness. There's an awful lot going on out there, but we, we're looking for something which isn't there. And missing what is actually going on. So it comes back to one of those opening things I said. What's going on? And what do you think's going on? Because often there's very two different things. What's going on is very often greatly different from what I think is going on. Even ourselves, we're not who we think we are. Yeah. I mean, this was the great fault that you find in Western thought with Descartes. You know? I think, therefore I am. Yeah. Establishing being by thinking about it. Well, we establish seemingly who we are by thinking who we are and what we are. And this is completely undermining that process of trying to establish ourselves through thinking. Don't take your thoughts so personally. That will continue. Yeah, Nick. If they're not, if they're not my thoughts, whose thoughts are they? They're just thoughts. Thoughts thinking. It's thinking going on. If you want to really have an answer to that, it's not that I am thinking. It's only because of the conventions of our language that we use that. You know, to, to actually to make a sensible sentence in English, which is you know subject, mm. predicate, verb, and all the rest of it. You know, the way that we construct a grammatical sentence. We have to say, I am thinking, or, you know, I am happy, I am joyful, I am sad, all these things. Well, actually, really, if you were just reporting on experience without trying to insinuate an eye, you'd be saying something like, and it's very inelegant in English, thinking is going on. Sadness is happening. Now, it's, you know, artificial to try and, you know, obviously take out the eye. I mean, even the Buddha himself in the text, is constantly referring to himself, I did this, and this happened to me. Um, there is reference to an I, but it's part of language. It's part of what we're doing. But there is something going on, most definitely, but there's not a self possessing it, in the sense of a fixed self. Yeah, Nora? Where does uh, free will go into this? Free, free will. Well, it's a big part of the equation. Um, it's not saying we have absolute free will, but it's not saying we are determined either. It says we have will, and that will is chetana. It's volition, the ability to do certain things. And that's part, when we begin to understand it in the system, um, that if you can imagine, and it's the only very simple way I can put it, because I don't want to go into big detail tonight, that the mind is a system. Yeah. Just like a computer is a system. Yeah. And you don't have to import something outside of the system which controls the whole system. Control is part of the system. Yeah. And it's just like that. So in other words, Chaitanya is a mental factor that arises with other mental factors. Yeah. And even the abnegation of volition is a Chaitanya. It's a volition. Yeah. So volitional activity is always part of the system. You don't have to have an overall controller. And is it volition and intention? Yes. It's volition, intention, will. They're all the same word, basically, in Pali. Yeah. You said a moment ago, like, sadness just just happening. Mm. Um, how do you reconcile that with that emotions are a product of an intention? 
Didn't you say something similar to that? Yeah. Well, emotional, respo- emotional responses are intentional responses. Yeah. Um, so if we started to look at them, in other words, they colour the world. What emotion is doing is constantly colouring the world. Uh-huh. And so act, the, the complexity is, of course, that when there is an emotion there, then an activity is going to arise out of it on the basis of that emotion as well. Because more often or not, the emotion will colour the quality of the mind and then will act in a particular way. So there's the intentional act, the mental act, and there's the actual activity that results from it. So even, you know, we might not be going and hitting somebody if I'm angry, but I might be scowling. Yeah. It will reflect, in other words, in some form of bodily activity or speech activity. Mm-hmm. I find it strange that you say that <coughs> um, emotions are a conscious intention because they seem very out of our control often. Mm. Well, that's, I'm not saying all, all intentions are conscious. There are unconscious intentions as well. Oh, or but Chetana is defined as... No, Chaitanya can be both unconscious or conscious. And when I say unconscious, I don't mean something like a Freudian unconscious. I mean it's something we're not conscious of, what the intention is behind the act, behind the mental attitude. But no, there are both levels there. And in fact, a lot of Buddhist practice is making those unconscious intentions conscious, so that you know what you're doing. Um, know how the emotion is colouring your responsiveness, or actually your reactiveness mostly, to the world and to the people that inhabit your world for you. Yeah, but no, it's very, very important, because the activity of a lot of meditative practice is to make conscious what is unconscious. Yeah. Uh, it's very big, it's very ambitious, isn't it, thinking about it, you know, from a... Um, a psychoanalytic perspective, certainly, is to take everything that Freud would call unconscious and making it conscious. So that you literally know what's going on. Because otherwise, there's always going to be something creeping up on you from behind. (laughs) Isn't there? That is the awakening process. Awakening to how it is. And one of the things I'm going to emphasise, you've heard me say quite a bit about it tonight, is that the Buddha is always asking questions about how it is. He's always asking those questions. How does this work? How does this happen? How do you respond? Those are his big questions. He's not interested in what is happening in terms of the essence of it, or the essence of the self. Any of that sort of stuff he writes out. He's really interested in processes. And this is what the Buddha is interested in. And in that sense, um, one of the big claims I often make, not so much in retreat situations, but I often claim the Buddha is really the first psychologist. He really is interested in psychological processes. Yeah, so in other words, if there is a description, which is what dependent origination is, as to how we get into the particular problems that we have, there is a how to unravelling that as well. There is a how to dukkha comes about. There is a how to its ceasing. There is a how to this selfing process and how we can hold that selfing process in a different way. It's not that you're going to disappear in the practice of Buddhism. 
<laughs> in terms of being a self. It's a relational activity. It's how you relate to that sense of self in, in this world that changes. And again, I'll, so I'm going to say something that I'll usually say later on in the retreat, but I'm going to say it now because I'm going to pick it up on it. There's a lot hangs in English on one little consonant, which is no and not. Because you'll often find this notion of anatta translated as no self. Where it really means not self. What is not self? So we're constantly looking at what is not self. Not to discover that there's no self. I mean, you don't walk in this room and your self is suddenly gone. You know, it's how it's operating. That there is nothing fixed to it that we're really beginning to examine. Now, in many ways, this is not difficult stuff. Yeah. I think the tradition sometimes can overcomplicate it, can really turn it into something which it isn't, um, for whatever reasons, and a lot of it's scholastic reasons. But the very essence of these ideas, of those three marks, which we really haven't moved away from this evening, um, and the intentions to examine them and how they come about and everything else that goes with that, that these three things are not that difficult to understand intellectually. They're really, really not. Well, impermanence is one we get, isn't it? Because whether we like it or not, we're going to observe things changing. It's written into just ordinary daily life. Things get broken, things get stolen, we lose things. You know, and sometimes there are tragedies in our lives. I mean, that's just written into ordinary life. So impermanence is something if we actually pay attention to, we can observe, and we can certainly get it intellectually. There's no great big deal about getting impermanence into, you know, intellectually. Dukkha. Well, you know, you can, you know, this, I think there's a great starting point of the whole Buddhist enterprise, really, is looking at uh, dukkha. Dukkha can't be a belief. Either you have it or you don't. Either you're experiencing it or you're not. So you start off from something very, very empirical. You know, are you dissatisfied with something in your life? If so, you're experiencing dukkha. <laughs> you know, and that can be from, I don't know, from the circumstances to your life, to the way you appear, to you know, what you think. You know, it can be any of that, of a vast gamut of experience. Here. So actually, dukkha is not difficult to get, is it? Anatta a little bit more difficult, but even that is just the lack of fixity. This is what we're talking about. The lack of any fixed thing within the individual or anything we experience. Any certainty and that. And I don't think these are particularly difficult. Perhaps the last one a little bit more than the others, but the others are really directly experienceable. But we just don't get it. You know, how many times, you know, even when you've been practicing for a long time, do you suddenly buy something and say it's not the right colour? and get really upset about it. Or, when your pen doesn't work and breaks, do you get upset about it? So, in other words, what we're saying it's not translated at all in terms of embodied experience. It's head stuff. And, in fact, the Buddha criticises, on a number of occasions, some of his um, disciples, particularly Ananda. Ananda's the fall guy. Um, he really does get it in the neck a lot of the time from the Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and even when he says one time, I'll read the passage when we get to it, but he says, and just paraphrasing, when Nanda says to the Buddha one day, he says, you know, this dependent origination stuff, it's really as clear as clear to me. And the Buddha goes, Ananda, think again. <laughs> <laughs> 
this teaching is profound. You know, and what he's actually saying is really difficult. You know, it's difficult to embody it, to see it, and not to be caught up in our normal reactivity. Because actually, a lot of the cases we haven't examined our intentional approaches. We hear it, and what does it do? Well, I think sometimes actually a lot of Buddhist material should have a label on it. It says, just passing through. Because that's what it does. It literally goes through the mind and doesn't make that embodied connection. This is why, I'm going to finish really on this, this is why we spend so much time in sitting and practicing and walking, and practicing, and looking at the intentional attitudes that we bring to our ordinary situations. What's going on? Cultivating different states of mind. And I much prefer that word to meditation. You know, if I'm going to be really provocative, I like to say Buddhists don't meditate, they cultivate. You know, bhavana, which is the Pali Sanskrit word for this, you know, bhavana means to bring into being, to grow. It means to cultivate to plant your seeds. And so planting your seeds is very important. And I'm going to finish on a quote. Nothing Buddhist, but T.S. Eliot. (laughs) Which is a little quote from a a poem called The Rock. I think he makes it just as clear as any Buddhist material. The loss of man is ceaseless labour, of ceaseless idleness, which is still harder, of irregular labour, which is not pleasant, I have trodden the winepress alone, and I know that it is hard to be really useful, resigning the things that men count for happiness, seeking the good deeds that lead to obscurity, accepting with equal faith those that bring ignominy, the applause of all or the love of none. All men are ready to invest their money, but most expect dividends. I say to you, make perfect your will. I say, take no thought of the harvest, but only of the proper sowing. That is why intention is important. It's how you sow, what you're sowing. That becomes really important. So, every time you sit, there's an intention behind doing it. But we have to keep reminding ourselves as to whether this is the intention, which is towards the awakening experience of waking up, or whether it's the intention to have just that better sangsara. You decide. (laughs) What does waking up mean? I mean, mean, you could say (laughs) the sentences, because otherwise you don't... I mean, we all have our own little glimpses or bigger glimpses, but otherwise it's quite hard to have an intention. I mean, as you were just saying Mm. earlier, it's so easy to deceive yourself. Am I just trying to have a slightly better self or Whatever. I mean. Self-improvement, for example, that's mm. another idea. Well, the waking up process, I mean, this is its fundamental to what Buddhism is about. Um, and if you just reflect on it just for a second, for example, we use words in English, and they're often mistranslations, so the Buddha is enlightened, where actually the word bodhi means awakened um, in the original language. So the Buddha wakes up. The word Buddha actually means the awakened one. I think there's a real challenge in that, which is far better than enlightened. Uh, And this is the challenge. It's saying we're all asleep. 
and the sleep is the slumber of ignorance, the slumber of confusion, the deadness uh, that we can all retreat into of habit in our responses to things. So to be awake is literally to be awake to how things are. Not how I want them to be, because again that's projection, that's projection often associated and tied to a self. But how are they actually manifesting at this moment in time? And that actually is what, you know, I joked about it in my paraphrase, but really the seriousness behind the Buddha's last words is everything is impermanent, and that is the how. You heard me say, we're not awakened because we don't get that. <laughs> it's, it's like, if I was going to make a joke out of this, it's like occasionally what happens is like, we're sleep, sleep, sleep. <laughs> you know, so we look up and we wake, you know, open an eye perhaps, look around, get a glimpse and fall back asleep again. And the sleep is that habit. The habit, habitual response. Well, I was going to say responses, because they're not responses. They're actual reactions to the way things are. So genuine response comes through the awakening process. Responding might be with virya, with energy, with courage, with vigour, with determination, with the way things are, with difficulty, you know, with gentleness when it's required, with compassion when it's required. Not that we have this limited range of responses or reactions, but that we wake up to a full palette of what, how we can be in this world. That's what the awakening process is. You know, so it's, you know, and it's a question you can ask yourself. I mean, it's, it's a question I think, again, it's worth posing to you. How do you want to be in this world? Do you want to be awake and alert responsive, or do you want to be asleep, reactive, and deadened? I mean, I've given it pretty <laughs> in a pretty negative way, but in a sense, that that's becomes the choice. Yeah. Um, but, and, and this is, this is the, the difficulty, I think, is that because we're so immured into habit and this deadened sleepiness that, that I think the Buddha is offering as a challenge of, it feels comfortable. Even in its discomfort, it feels comfortable. And so often there's not the, again, volition, the will to want to wake up. You know, it's, it's literally that sleep of, oh, well, it's too much. Too much to try and do anything about it. And I think that's what's really implied by that. And so I actually think the word awakened is a real challenge. Real challenge to us. Well, I don't find the word enlightened a challenge at all. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> what is the challenge? Is it though when we have an insight in a mo- in a mm. it, that's an awakening? Yeah. So, okay. I mean, just so it's not so pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, and I, I think what you're, I hope what mm. you're saying is to have many more a chain of insights rather than I had one for the day. <laughs> Something like that? Yes, it is. I mean, let's have a nuclear fission of insights. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think actually in a way, I'm using that jokingly, but in a way that is what's actually happening, is actually getting that pattern going of waking up to things. 
Um, but what normally happens, and that's why I was being pessimistic slightly about it, and I don't really think that we're all like this, but I mean, what often will happen is we will have that insight and ignore it and go back to habit because it's easier. Yeah, it's familiar. So it doesn't get integrated, it doesn't get that's consolidated, right. it doesn't get some... I think that's a really good word, integration. Yeah. Yeah, it, integrated. Integrity also comes out of that same word. Yeah. It doesn't actually get fully embodied. So it's kind of something half understood, not really understood. And I suppose one of the things I would say about all of the things I've talked about this evening and the Buddhist teaching in general is it's entirely practical. And we tend to forget that because we can get over-intellectual about it. And I, I can hold my hands up for that, you know, because I've taught in, you know, in universities. Um, but it's not. It's an entirely practical teaching. And it's one that's deeply compassionate because it's saying, look at human misery. Yeah, let, let's just talk about humans at this stage. I know he goes on and talks about all beings, but just look at human misery and the depth of clinging to that misery a lot of the time. It's a source of great pathos. Yeah. If we think about our own inveiglement in that situation and we think about suffering others yeah, throughout the world, yeah, it's enormity of it. Now, a lot of it isn't self-created. You know, something like the Haitian thing that's just happened recently, that's not self-created. Yet an awful lot of it is. And it's so interesting, isn't it, you know, that exponentially as wealth has increased in the Western world, depression and other psychological disorders has gone up at the same time. Yeah. Showing, in one sense, we're trying to solve the problem, we just don't know how to do it. Yeah. There hasn't been sufficient insight, or there's been the ignoring of insight. And that ignoring is ignorance again. You said that um, emotions are part of a system mm. and that it, it regulates itself. Yeah. Um, and, but it, it seems that the system has a tendency also built in to confuse itself. Yeah. And as you said, to be lazy. Mm. So we, uh, and, and, uh, um, is it fair, and, and yet it's impersonal? Mm. There's no, no being that's, it's a system that keeps, mm. it continues. Well, it's a system, it's a system that can be nudged in either direction. And then let's take the two poles, and I won't use good and bad, I'll use the way it's done in text. Kusala and Akusala. Wholesome, unwholesome, skillful or unskillful. And when you look at the psychological system in Buddhism, particularly in the Abhidhamma, you'll find that the mind is laid out into neutral factors that just have to be there in experience, ethically variable factors, then wholesome factors and unwholesome mental factors. And all of these arise together with consciousness. So in any consciousness moment, there is unwholesomeness or wholesomeness, plus a whole load of neutral or ethically variable factors which are occurring. Now, dependent on the way the volitions are developed within the system, so unwholesome mental factors will generally start to produce more unwholesome mental factors. However, if instead of going down the route of unwholesomeness, volitionally, 
a wholesome mental inclination, let's put it no stronger than that, a men, wholesome mental inclination occurs, then the tendency can be then to build on that in that direction. Okay. Well, what about um, emptiness and not self in the system? There is mm -hmm. a system, and yet it, it's, a, it's real. And it continues and, and it, it has these either wholesome or negative inclinations, mm. uh, uh, but it's empty somehow. That's what I want. Well, I mean, let, let, let's take, just take that time because I think if, if. Thoughts without the thinker. Yeah, thoughts without the thinker. I think if we'd start. System thinking, but there's no. There's no center to it. There's no center to it. it. It's empty somehow. It's empty, yeah. Just in being a system, it is empty. But empty does not mean unreal. I mean, in talking about, I mean, I could talk about that table. I could say that table is empty. And I don't mean it's unreal. I mean it's empty of something that mentally often is being projected into experience of that table, which is um, an essence, a stability, a certainty... You know, that table is my most beautiful table, and then the leg drops off. <laughs> you know, I'm joking again about it. But in other words, it doesn't possess the stability that we think it possesses. It doesn't possess an essentiality that we think it possesses. And this is all fairly neutral stuff, comparatively. But when we start thinking about humans, you know, we often start thinking in terms of this person's essentially good or essentially bad. You know, essentially trustworthy, essentially untrustworthy, all these things that we project, and we start thinking about ourselves in that way too. Um, I mean, how many times, I mean, I've had this done loads of times in my life, people have often come up to me and said, you're this sort of person, aren't you? And it's kind of trying to pigeonhole you, and to say what you are. Um, and often we will try to do that, and there's many, many ways and many strategies for doing this. You know, of trying to place somebody, yeah. and now thinking about them. Now, th that kind of essentialist thinking is what's being attacked, not that it's unreal. Now, anything, according to the Buddha, again, this is something we can see and experience if we really try to start to examine it, everything is dependently originated. Now, dependently originated means this is dependent, you know, this is dependent on that, this is dependent on that, this is dependent on that. You know, so it's a series of dependencies. And when we come to dependent origination, what we're talking about is, the Buddha uses an image, actually, he uses of, of corn stooks placed against each other, supporting each other. Yeah. So each element of experience upholds another element of experience here. Now, in talking about it in that way, well, it can't possess essentiality if that's the case. So it's empty of essentiality. Empty of something I believe to be there. Because I change, if I take one stuck, corn stuck away, the whole lot might fall over. Yeah. If I take one element out of experience, the whole lot might change. Now that is both a recipe for samsara and for nibbana. Actually. <coughs> Because if I call, if I, if there is some volitional elements within the system which are causing change in a particular direction, I could end up nibbanaing. Because it's so habitualized, most of the time I end up sangsaring. 
Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. So we're not talking, and please, please, I would say this to every, please do not hear the word emptiness as being not real. The word, actually I ought to say this, I'm going to say this, I'm finished this evening. But the word that's used in, in Pali and Sanskrit is either shunya in Sanskrit or sunya in, in Pali. It's basically the same word. And this word indicates nothing and a plenum. In other words, nothing and everything. <laughs> indicates both things. What it's saying is, is that shunya actually is indicating the absence of a something, but leaving everything in place. Does people follow that? I hope it wasn't too complicated. Say it over again. I still have a question. What's the difference between then dependently originated and determined? And, sorry. Determined. Determined mind. Um, Well, because it it depends on the factors that are arising, whether those factors are volitional factors. And here we're getting into the realms of karma again. Karma and vipaka. Karma... But why this second, for instance, you know, uh, my past is my past, but mm. I still have a choice whether I'm going to talk or exactly. stay silent. Exactly. And the past cannot decide if I'm going to speak or not. I have that uh, choice to yes. do either or. So what's that? Well, I mean, it's, again, it's unravelling. I don't want to get into too much detail about this at this moment in time. But really what you've got is two elements. You've got an action and a consequence. The action is karma. I'll use the, deliberately, I'll use the Sanskrit word for this, is karma. The consequence is what's called the fruit, vipaka. It's the end result. So every action has a consequence. I mean, that's the basic model. Now, okay, I might be the result of past actions. In fact, I am. I mean, we all are. That's exactly what we are. We're the result of, in other words, we're experiencing the fruit of past actions. Now, for example, I could be dealing with something I've done in the past and I'm trying to write it. It's a wrong I've done in the past. I'm trying to write it. So that is a a present karma, an activity, which is going to produce a future fruit. Now, whether I dealt with it in this particular way, wholesomely or unwholesomely, is a matter of volitional choice at that moment in time. So, in other words, karma, which is what we're talking, as I say, about here, is not determination. It's only determination in the sense if nothing is done at all. Now, most of us won't do nothing. We'll do something. Even if it's more negativity, or it might be something that's wholesome. And that's going to produce a consequence, which then becomes the object of more karma. <laughs> so karma is never at an end. It's always a perpetual beginning. Yeah. And that's important to hear, because often, and this is actually the way the majority of Hindus interpret karma, is a sort of fatalism. Yeah. And that's not the Buddhist way, because the Buddha introduced the moral ethical content into it because it depended on the intention behind the act which is then going to produce the consequence and then becomes the subject again of the next intentional act so that's never at an end it's a kind of rolling ball would you um, you you said absence of a something but leaving everything 
Yeah. It's absence of something I believe to be there. And generally that is some form of essence. Essentiality. Um, the technical term for it is Svabhava, which actually means intrinsic existence. Which nothing has. Nothing has intrinsic no, existence. Nothing in, the, nothing in the world. Possesses intrinsic any, existence. It's all dependent. Shunya. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. Shunya means nothing and everything. It means nothing and everything, yeah. yeah. In fact, it was a word that was used in Indian mathematics to indicate absolute zero. Yeah, in Indian mathematics. Shunya. The system then with the system that's connected with everything. Because so everything have a single essential part. No, that's exactly right. It's the system of interdependencies. Yeah, so it's really saying that the universe is merely a system of interdependencies. However, this little bit of interdependence takes itself very important. It thinks itself very important. <laughs> you know, and actually feels itself cut off from everything it's dependent on. This is, if you like, of the existential alienation that many people feel. Yeah, even if they're living in massive cities. I heard someone once say we're a self-organizing system. Yeah. And, and um, could you say, I mean, we're relatively independent? In other yeah. words, we can make choices and pursue a yeah. course of action. Yeah. But not absolutely independent. No, it can't be absolutely independent. I, I mean, from the level of physical survival, we're not independent in the slightest. And we can never be. You know, all this stuff that I'm wearing, all of the food that I eat, all of that has to be supplied by others. You know, and many, many, many others. You know, to get it into a form that's wearable or eatable in much cases. Um, and even if it's food, you know, grown food, vegetarian type food, that's dependent, obviously, on the sun, on the rain, on the nutrition in the soil. You know, it's a one vast, massive interdependence. And yet we have some volitional control, and this is where the independence lies, of the ways that we act. You know, so actually taking a choice and realising that we're interdependent is one of the choices that we make. Yeah. The marvellous correlative of that, though, isn't it? it you, know, you just think of, we are a system of interdependencies mm. and nothing is excluded from that. Mm. Then we are the whole thing, manifesting as you or me. And yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, this is true. And you'll find many, many texts reiterating, particularly Mahayana's texts, We'll do this over and over again, this reiteration of this massive... And one in the Vimalakirti Nadesha Sutra, uh, for example, it talks about Indra's net and everything being gathered <coughs> under Indra's net. You know, this is, this is you know, an ancient image, a very, very ancient image. You'll find Shantideva in the Buddhachari Avatara, which is another very famous Mahayana's text, talking about it makes no sense to talk about my pain or your pain. It's only this interrelationship of pain that we have of dukkha, you know, not cutting ourselves off. So this is what I call, like, I think one of the common things that comes out of this is radical engagement, and something I want to explore as we, as we go further into the retreat, of radical, actually what shunya does, emptiness does, is it actually provides the grounds for radical engagement, not for radical disengagement. You know?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.